welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky. This is the podcast which is going to help you feel more confident, empowered and connected in motherhood. This week's episode is a huge one for me. It is with someone whose work has had a massive impact on my healing and my journey to becoming far more self-aware and compassionate. It is Dr. Gabor Mate, best-selling author and called the world's greatest thinker on human development. In this groundbreaking episode, you are going to hear Gabor directly speak to the experience of modern parenthood and why it is so unnatural. He reveals the truth about sleep training and why our children will always be our greatest teachers. I absolutely loved this episode. I hope you do too. Can you do me a favour and subscribe to the Motherkind podcast? We have so many incredible episodes just like this one, week in, week out with powerhouse guests just like Gabor. So if you want to hear Mel Robbins, Dr. Ronkin Chatterjee, Dr. Shafali and more, then please do subscribe so you never miss an episode. Here it is. I'm thrilled to be sat opposite you this morning. Your work has had it's not too little to say a deeply profound impact on me. Mm. I have a family that is full of addiction and trauma and dysfunction and sadness. Mm-hmm. And your work fundamentally shifted how I saw all of that and has given mm. me a, a freedom and a compassion for my generational heritage and myself that I hadn't known before. Mm. So it's a deep honour and I'm really grateful Thank, well, thank you. you. It's so gratifying to hear you make that acknowledgement. I'm so glad my work was of benefit to you. Thank yeah, you. Deep benefit. So I made loads of notes, like seven pages of how I was going to plan this interview. Sure. And then you said something mm. at the end of your talk this morning. I wanted to start there because it spoke so directly to what I'm trying to do with Motherkind. And a beautiful mother raised her hand in the question time. And she mm. said, you're one of the leading voices on child development. You know, she said, I understand what you're talking about, importance of attachment and seeing our children. Mm. She said, what's one thing that I could do? And I was like bated breath waiting for your answer. And you said, look after yourself. Yeah. If I may interrupt, I quoted Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist teacher, who said that the greatest gift a parent can give to a child is his or her own happiness. Because when the parents are unhappy and stressed, the child inevitably takes that personally. Because children are narcissistic in that developmental sense that they think it's all about them. So an unhappy parent means that the child feels they're unworthy. So really, the primary task of parenting is self-parenting, taking care of ourselves. Now, a lot of other things are also necessary, but that's the baseline. And I know from my own infancy, I had an experience once, this may seem strange to the audience, but sometimes I work with psychedelics. And they can take you very powerful into your unconscious. And this experience, I was sitting there with a therapist. I was 71 years old. The therapist is in her 50s. She's a woman. And I'm looking at her and I'm experiencing myself as a six-month-old infant. And I'm quite aware that she is the therapist and I'm the 71-year-old physician and international author and all that. At the same time, I'm a six-month-old infant and she's my mother. And I'm looking at her and I start crying and I say, I'm so sorry I made your life so difficult. So I took that on at six months of age. And you think you were still carrying that up until the point of 71? 
I was carrying it to the point of 71 and not being able to see that and articulate it, of course, helps to release it. Now, my mother couldn't help it because she was living under terrible conditions, Nazi occupation of Hungary. So it's not a question of mother blaming, but it is a question to the extent that we parents can take care of ourselves, we're sparing our children a lot of pain. Yeah, and I wanted to, that idea, your thoughts around trauma and childhood trauma have really changed my view of it because you say it's not what happens to you, it's how you experience what happens to you. And I wondered if you could talk to that in context of your own experience and the adaptations that come from that and how that affects then everything as you've just described. Sure. So I'm a physician, now retired, and most of my medical career and even beyond, I've been a workaholic. Now that means that it's not only that I love my work, which I did, and not just I'm committed to helping people, which I am, but also there was a compulsive need to do it, even at the expense of my own family and, and, and my own emotional balance. That's what an addiction is. And a lot of doctors are workaholics, by the way, and their families suffer because I'll talk about that in a moment. Mm. But what was driving me was a sense of not being good enough and of maybe not being wanted. Now, under the conditions that I spent my first year, a Jewish infant under Nazi occupation with a mother who was stressed, grief-stricken, and terrorized, the infant can only interpret it, if she's so unhappy, it must be because I'm not lovable. And then she gave me to a stranger to save my life, and I didn't see her for four or five weeks, which then gives me the sense even more that I'm not lovable. Now, if I have this unconscious belief that I'm not lovable, I need to compensate for it somehow because we need to be loved. We just do. That's just our deep need that we all have as human beings. Well, then why don't I become a helper? Why don't I become so important that people always wanting me, wanting my presence and my assistance? That's a substitute for love, but it's the closest thing I could get to it. As long as I don't believe I'm lovable internally, I need to seek the signs of love or being wanted from the outside. Hence the workaholism. So every time the beeper goes or the, I'm called to deliver a baby or to look after a dying person or everything else in between, hey, I'm important, I matter. It's a compensation. What's the message to my own kids? That they're not important because daddy's always out working. So we pass it on unwittingly. And this is the generational cycle that you talk about so eloquently. Absolutely. But the workaholism wasn't a mistake on my part. It wasn't a fault, you might say, or a sin. What it was was a, an attempt to compensate for something lacking in myself. And I love, you said it, I've heard it before, but you said it again this morning that actually addiction is a brilliant, in many ways, coping strategy for something that we feel is lacking. Absolutely. I define addiction as, as being manifested in any behavior that a person finds temporary pleasure or relief in and therefore craves, but suffers negative consequences as a result of and cannot give it up. So that's anything like sex, gambling, shopping, eating, work, internet, gaming, of course, drugs, alcohol, nicotine, anything. But when you ask people, and the belief around addiction in the medical world that it's a chronic disease that you largely inherit, which is scientific balderdash as far as I'm concerned, when you actually ask people, what does the addiction do for you? Well, I mean, I've just given you a definition of addiction. Have you ever had an addiction in your life? I'm not asking what it was. Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to ask you what it was or when, but let me ask you, what did you get from it? Validation. Validation. Was that important for human beings or not? Yeah. In other words, it was a brilliant attempt to solve some kind of a lack inside yourself, to fill some kind of an emptiness. That's what addiction is. 
So rather than calling it a chronic brain disease, let's look at it for what it is. It's a misguided but fundamentally normal attempt to get something that we really need on the emotional level. And all addictions serve the same function. Mm. And so that immediately means that the question is, what happened to you? That you lacked a sense of value, which is what validation is about. And what happened to you is that your parents, and I'm not saying they didn't love you or they didn't do their best, they weren't devoted, but for whatever limitations of their own, weren't able to give you a sense of your own genuine value as a human being. Absolutely. That's what happened to me. My parents loved me. And I know you talk about this with your mother. They loved me with all their heart, but they were traumatized. My mum, you know, in particular, just couldn't be emotionally available to me because she couldn't be there for herself. And that's where my passion comes from, from what I'm I'm doing today, of course. Yes, wonderful. Yeah, so with that lens on addiction then, because you asked it this morning, you said there was, what, two, three hundred people this morning, maybe more? No, no, I think there were, what, six, seven, eight hundred people. Six, seven, eight hundred people, yeah. yeah. I was right at the front, I didn't look back too much. And you asked who's ever been addicted at one point in their lives. Everyone put their hand up. Absolutely. So why as a society do we have this ridiculous idea that it's about the drug and therefore we should throw people in prison? Well, first because... We don't see the continuum of addictions. It's precisely because we're also addicted. That we don't we need, want to look at it. We don't want to look at it. So we want to then scapegoat the identifiable addicts, the ones who are most egregiously caught up in the grips of addiction. <laughs> and that makes us feel superior. Another adaptation. Which is another adaptation because we've been full good enough. Absolutely. And it, it helps us to ignore our own. And, uh, you know, when I mean, you look at the spiritual teachers, like Buddha said, before you try and straighten somebody else, make sure that you're not crooked yourself. And Jesus says, do not judge lest ye be judged. So the spiritual masters, the teachers, the avatars, they know this stuff. So we're projecting our own self-dislike onto identifiable others, and that way we can feel better about ourselves. Number one. Number two, on a social economic level, there's a huge industry built around the treatment industry and the law enforcement industry. These people are invested in a certain point of view, despite all the evidence to the contrary. And the evidence is not even controversial that our present measures therapeutically don't work and the laws don't work and the enforcement doesn't work. In fact, it only makes things worse. But we don't live in an evidence-based society. We live in a society that's really based on unconscious dynamics and people are largely unconscious. Mm. And we see that time and time again, don't we? And I wanted to talk to you about some of that unconsciousness and how it links to how we're raising our children Mm -hmm. in Western societies. You know, and it does link to addiction because you say all addiction at its root has trauma. So what are some of the parenting practices, you know, crying out, (coughs) naughty step? What are some of those that you see? Let me mention two. Now, you'll have to tell me if these are endemic in Britain as well, but there's sleep training. Some, yes. Okay. Hugely growing industry. Okay. So sleep training basically means ignore a child's cries at night. I mean, there's variations on it, but that's the essential theme. No. Yeah, they need to self-soothe. Yeah, they need to self-soothe. And if you pick them up, you're training them, they'll only sleep in your arms. Exactly right. That's the theory. Now, really, it has nothing to do with the child's needs. You tell a mother cat to ignore a baby's cries. You go and, you know, see what happens. Well, let me tell you, I tried to do this at breaking point. I was so tired and someone said, why don't you leave her for a bit to cry? It was actually a real point of tension between my husband and I because I had this visceral, I almost punched my husband to get out of the way so I could get to her. Wow. Because it felt so, 
I can't explain it. It's one of the strongest feelings I've ever had was to get to her. Well, you were a mother bear. And, yeah, exactly. And, 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 and that's how I felt. And, I was like, and, get out of my way. And try and come between the mother bear and her cub and see what happens. So we're breaking our instincts with some of these. What you're actually being told to do is precisely what you described, which is to actually ignore your own gut feelings and your own instincts. So actually training people out of their parenting instincts. There are parenting instincts and it's evoked by a child who wants to connect with you. Now, when you tell parents to ignore the child, from, that's from the parent's point of view. From the infant's point of view, attachment, the need to belong and to be close to another, to be taken care of, is an essential need of the infant. Now, attachment works on different levels. See, you're married. You can love your husband without being in his presence. Yeah. You Sometimes can, I love him more. Yeah. <laughs> Absence makes the hard work. Exactly. <laughs> I, get, I get that because you don't get triggered. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's easier yeah. to love yeah. him from afar. But the point is you can hold him in your heart. Yeah. And you can hold your child in your heart even without being with her mm. or him. But a six-month-old infant has only got one way to attach. They can only attach physically. In other words, they have a sense of being close to and belonging to and being taken care of only through physical contact, seeing and hearing and touching and smelling the nurturing parent. So when an infant is crying at night after you've satisfied their hunger needs and changed them so they're not uncomfortable and they're still crying, it's because they need the physical contact with you. So they have no other way of attaching. And when you don't pick them up, what you're teaching them is that they're not important and their attachment needs don't matter. Now, there's a psychologist called Darcia Narvez, Dr. Narvez at Notre Dame University in the States who studies attachment patterns around the world. And she looks at hunter-gatherer peoples are the best parents because they never put their kids down. They don't let their kids cry. They always pick them as soon as the kid cries. They don't hit their kids. And there's other features as well. But the point is, hunter-gatherer people are still parenting instinctively the way that human beings were evolved and created. We in this society run roughshod over nature. So that sleep training technique actually works. The child will go to sleep. Why? Because they get discouraged and their brain shuts down to help them escape from the pain of being ignored. Mm. That's why it works. Okay. But what have you taught the kid? Yeah, you're not important. So that's one technique. Then there's a timeout technique. Where Very popular in the UK. Yeah. Well, it was made popular by this nanny who made the naughty step, like this really yeah. big thing. It's noxious. So well, why. again, the child's biggest need is attachment. Why is that their biggest need? Because they can't survive without it. So when you say to the child, if you don't please me, I'm going to use the attachment relationship against you, you're threatening their lives and their sense of who they are. Now, they will comply. Just the same reason as you would comply if I held a gun to your head. Yes, I'd comply. Yeah. You'd be very cooperative. You can make a small child very cooperative by threatening them or applying time out temporarily. But there's a number of things I want to say about it. What have you taught them? You've taught them that their behavior is more important to you than they are. Now they start to adjust themselves to your expectations, giving up their true selves. Now you've created the template for mental and physical illness later on. Number one. Number two, has anybody ever tried time out on a teenager? Probably. Try it. Yeah. See what happens. Oh, I don't get to be in your August presence for the next three minutes. How unspeakable. It'll be tragic. Well, go then, to my room. Great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> They've already given up on you. They don't care anymore because it's so painful. So they shut down emotionally and they detach from you. Now, the only healthy basis for child development 
and this is made really articulate in the book I co-wrote called Hold On To Your Kids, yeah. the only healthy basis for child development is nourishing close attachment relationship with healthy adults. When the child is hurt so much in that relationship through these timeouts, guess what they do? They emotionally withdraw. As soon as they emotionally withdraw, you lose your parental authority. Now you have to become authoritarian. Parents need to be authoritative, but it's a disaster to be authoritarian. Parents shouldn't be permissive or authoritarian. They need to be authoritative. Your authority as a parent derives from the child's natural desire to belong to you, to be close to you. I mean, if your husband said to you, Zoe, every time you displease me and we have an argument, it's time out. How long would you stay with him? Long. I'm recovering codependent, so not yeah, long. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> Will we expect our children to stay in a relationship with us? Mm. No, they don't. They withdraw emotionally. Because mm. they can't withdraw physically. They can't withdraw physically, but they withdraw emotionally. Mm. And then emotionally, they need to fill that gap with somebody else. Now they turn to the peer group. Now they become more connected to the peer group than to the adults. Look what's happening to our kids. Mm. How desperately connected to the peer group they are, the constant FaceTiming and tweeting and Instagramming and all. These are all markers of disturbed adult-child relationships mm -hmm. and the desperation to belong to the peer group. So what we're doing with these timeouts is we are destroying the basis for health development. It's noxious and it works only because parents are increasingly divorced from their own gut feelings and their own parenting instincts. And because economically, the child has to fit in to the stressed needs of the adult world. And of course, adults are becoming more and more stressed. That's not their fault. But as a result of the current economic situation and, and social circumstances, parents are more and more stressed. Now child behavior becomes a problem to be controlled rather than child development becoming the primary goal. It's getting our kids to behave and at no matter what cost. Mm. So that's what's happening. And the timeout movement and the sleep training is nothing but manifestations of an economically dysfunctional society forcing parents to parent not from the child's needs, but from their own comfort so they can fit into this crazy lifestyle that we lead. And something I find so interesting that you talk about around this is that these adaptations that children go through and yeah. often you say, and this was me actually, yeah. my adaptation was to become the good girl. Of course. And so I don't look like anything's wrong. I look like everything's right. You know, I never That's got right. a B. I got A stars. I was her girl. I was, but actually the gap between how I felt inside and how I looked outside was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I heard you talk about these behaviors that we do as parents yeah. of young children leading to the perfectionism, the people pleasing, which was me. Yeah. Yeah. So could you just make that link sure. for people that might be struggling to make that link? How do these behaviors, a child removing themselves emotionally lead to adult behaviors, what does that look like? Well, so I mentioned my own workaholism as being an adaptation. In your case, being nice and pleasing people was your way of getting loved. Yeah. But it's a conditional kind of love because it depends on how you behave and how you relate to others. So even when they like you... They don't really like me. No, they like your behavior. Yeah. Which is something, and you know that. So it does not do anything to fill the emptiness of lack of self-love that you have, but it, at least it helps you function in the world. So it's a pure adaptation. So a lot of these very, very nice people are actually just reflecting how they adapted to not being valued as children. Of course, that may get you a million friends who really like you, quote unquote. It did. But you feel totally alone. Absolutely. So you could be totally isolated. You could be in a room with a thousand friends and be totally alone 
Because in order not to feel alone, you have to be seen. And they never actually see who you actually are. Well, I was too scared to be seen for a long time, to be well, of vulnerable. Course. Of course. So that was an adaptation. Yeah. And the cost that you pay is increasing isolation. So paradoxically, you have all these people around you and you're totally alone. And not to mention, there's the physical impacts of when you keep doing that. It's very stressful to keep ignoring your own needs and try and fit into other people's expectations. That stress is a template for disease. Yeah, I got burnt out at 21. Wow. That's, that was my story. Yeah. And it all goes back to what happens early on. So if someone's listening to this and they might have done sleep training unconsciously, and I think that's something you talk about that I love, and why you're different, I think, to some of the other people talking this, is you take all the blame away. Yeah. And that's why I think I feel so confident having this quite hard-hitting conversation mm. because you say there's no blame for what we did when we weren't conscious. I did my best as a parent. I love my kids. I would have thrown myself into a fire for them. The problem is they didn't need me to throw myself into a fire. They just needed me to be around and conscious and self-loving around them. And, and, and I wasn't, mm. you know, but it wasn't deliberate. Mm. I did my best. All parents do their best. We all do. Absolutely. Yeah, and so there's no question of blame here. And when we do something unconsciously, we're not doing it with any deliberate intent. So we really have to figure ourselves for that. But if we did sleep here, train our kids, and if we did do the timeouts and whatever else we did, now we have to say, well, whatever age they're at, how can we repair the relationship? How can we make them feel safe again? How can we open it up again in a way that the child will then come to us again, open-heartedly and vulnerably? Here's the thing about vulnerability. We live in a culture of invulnerability where vulnerability is punished and actually laughed at and demeaned. But nothing grows without vulnerability. A plant doesn't grow where it's hard and thick. It grows where it's green and soft and vulnerable. Or the other example I give is a crustacean animal who, in order to grow, he's encased in a hard shell to protect himself, but to grow, he has to mold. He has to get outside the carapace and be very soft and vulnerable. So there's no growth without vulnerability. When children shut down defensively their vulnerability, they stop growing emotionally. So that in order to help our children develop into the healthy adults, into maturity, we need to promote their vulnerability. And we promote vulnerability when we make it safe for them to be vulnerable. So if someone's listening exactly as you described and they're thinking, oh, you know, they've come into consciousness through listening to this yeah. maybe. And they instinctively, like when I heard your word, instinctively makes sense, doesn't yeah. it? It's not yeah. that complicated, if you yeah. don't mind me saying it. It makes sense. <laughs> I don't mind you saying it. You know, I was just saying to the organizer of this, you know, last night there were 1,500 people there Wow, congratulations. No, no, thank you. But I'm just mentioning that in this morning, another several hundred giving the same talk that you heard. And I said to the organizer afterwards, it's such a joke because I'm only saying one thing. And whether I'm talking about addiction or mental illness or physical illness or chartering, I'm only saying one thing. If you treat children well, they're going to be okay. And if you don't treat them well, they're not going to be okay. And that's all I ever say. And it is so simple as you say. The fact that one has to say it with as much force and as many words and as many erudite studies as I, I have to muster is a sign of a crazy society. For sure. Because, you know what, your great-grandmother knew all this stuff mm. without experts like me. Yeah, and you talk about it's relatively recent in society that we live this way, isn't it? You know, more dual-working families than ever before in the Western world. Absolutely. We've lost that sense of community. I live miles away from... My family, yeah. for the first year, it was basically me in a house on my own with a baby. Which is totally unnatural. It felt unnatural. It did, yeah. Well, because how we evolved was in hunter-gatherer groups. So until a few thousand years ago, for hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution, 
hundred thousand years of our species walking the earth. We lived in small hunter-gatherer bands where people lived in communities and children had multiple attachment adult figures in their lives. This isn't what's natural. This is about our nature is suited to. So when you're living in a bungalow or an apartment by yourself and your spouse is out to work and you're at home and alone with the kid and there's nobody around, that's totally unnatural. Mm. Mothers and parents in general have pressures on them that are actually beyond oh. the natural responsibility of a human being. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. That was my experience. And then it's no wonder that you pick up a book that says, if you leave your baby to cry, you'll get an extra five hours sleep a night. That feels quite alluring. And it's true, and you will. But what you don't learn is what that child needs and what you need. Yeah. So what needs to happen in society then, do you think? We can't go back, can we? Well, we can't go back to being hunter-gatherers. But we can certainly recognize that the attachment drive is just as powerful in us now as it was in hunter-gatherer days. And how do we restore the circumstances in which that attachment drive of children is actually met? Well, if you look at actually what happened politically and economically, say in England, beginning with Thatcher years, Mm. is increasing austerity, increasing cutback on social programs, ignoring of communal needs. Thatcher went so far as to say there's no such thing as society. We don't exist as social creatures. We're just all individuals. Well, that has been reflected in economic policy and social policy now for three or four decades. It's devastating. And the epidemic of loneliness that everybody talks about, this is reality. So what we need to do as a society, we need to go back to a communal ethic. But of course, doing that also necessarily means challenging certain powerful interests who are very happy with the way things are now because it allows them to be in power and to be very wealthy. And, and even the, uh, the rise in inequality has been documented and it's just so devastating to society, according to brilliant British work by Marmot and others. That doesn't hit everybody the same way. For some people, it's very beneficial in the way they see their needs as being for more power and profit. Mm. So these are not individual parenting questions purely. They're also social and community and economic and political questions. So people need to take action in their own lives to look at what stresses them and how much stress they take on unnecessarily and what could they possibly deal with and how could they actually do more to meet the child's attachment needs. And they also need to look at the social questions. it's super helpful for people listening to put that into the context that we're operating in this model which doesn't work for mothers in particular and I see that time and time again well so mothers again so I might I mentioned this in my talk but I didn't explain why if you look at a condition like multiple sclerosis yeah in the 1930s and 40s at least in North America and I imagine in Britain as well the gender ratio was close to one to one Mm -hmm. so for every man diagnosed there'd be a woman diagnosed you know what the ratio now is is three and a half women to every man And women are much more likely to get autoimmune disease, of which MS is one example. Now, why? Because the role of being the emotional stress absorbers of their environment, including their spouses, has always fallen on women. I mean, culturally, they're programmed to do that. It's not genetic. It's a cultural expectation. 
But now women also have to play an equivalent economic role. Yeah, we have to work as well. Yeah, you have to work as well. But meanwhile, nobody has stepped up to share the emotional role with you. So now you're carrying two highly charged responsibilities. And you're doing so in the context of less contact, less family, less extended family, less tribe, less clan, less community. So you got more stress with less support. Guess what? Three and a half ratio of multiple sclerosis. So women are playing a heavy price here. Do you think this is the hardest time to be a mother? Right now? Yeah. I know we're not at war. And we're, we're, not not. A, we're not at war. And I don't know what it's like to be a mother doing Britain as industrialization times with long hours at factories and all that. So, I mean, but let me tell you this, that since the Second World War, this is the hardest time to be a mother. Because after the Second World War, there was for a while a sense of joint purpose and communality. And it was much more of a social network to support people. But since the 70s, with the increasing neoliberalization of the economy, the austerity, the cutback on social programs, the cutbacks in education, the loss of support, this is the hardest. And, and the increasing stresses on people and the need to fulfill these multiple roles has become very hard to be a mother. Absolutely. And that's the experience that I hear time and time again yeah. from, you know, I work with hundreds of mothers on this sort of stuff. So I just wanted to look back around about some other things that we were talking about. Yeah. That it just piques my personal passion so much, which is around these adaptations and meeting our children's needs. And if there's someone listening who is thinking, I want to change this I want to become more conscious in myself yeah. my belief is that we have to do that for ourselves first before we can give it to our children simultaneous okay so could you explain that and I know you talk about it in your book hold on to your children but can you talk about what that process looks like where does someone go with this well let me talk about one aspect that we didn't talk about in hold on to your kids which is as I said just a moment ago women have always carried the role of being the stress absorbers of their families, including their husbands. So in my marriage, I was a very needy little boy when I was 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years old. You know, who becomes the mother? The women automatically take on that mother and roll towards their spouses, which means that if I have two children, then the mother has not three babies to look after, the two little ones and the big baby who's 30 or 40. And women automatically very often take this on. That's immensely stressful. So first of all, look at your marriage and ask yourself, how much mothering am I? I'm not talking about genuine spouse-to-spouse support, which is meant to be reciprocal. And that's, of course, why we connect. But how much one-way emotional supporting and parenting I'm doing to my spouse? Because everything I do that way is taken away from my children. That's brilliant to hear. So you have to look at that first. And then secondly, you really have to understand the attachment needs of the child and how does the child manifest his attachment needs very often through behaviors that we then punish them for. So we use this phrase acting out. Mm. And by acting out, we mean a kid who is obstreperous or disruptive or rude or aggressive. That's not what acting out means. Acting out is a really good English phrase. What does it actually mean? In a game of charades, when you're not allowed to speak, what do you have to do? You have to act out. If I landed in England and spoke not a word of English, but I was hungry, 
be flailing your arms everywhere, wouldn't you? Well, I might be pointing my belly or yeah. my mouth and making eating motions. I have to act it out. So when children act out, that's exactly what they're doing. But what they're acting out are their emotional needs. They're showing us. They're showing us something that's lacking because they don't have the words to say it in language. They're throwing it through behavior to get our attention. But any child who acts out, whether they're aggressive or whether they're bullying their younger siblings or bullying other kids in school or they're throwing tantrums, whatever they're doing, they're acting something out. Now, the parenting experts will tell you, control that behavior and get rid of it. Yeah. Which is to say, let's ignore the child's emotional needs so we get them to comply with us. This is what the parenting experts say. And what should really happen is the parent needs to be taught to understand. And parents instinctively, if they pay attention to their gut feelings, you know that that child is in pain. You know that that child is in distress. You know that that behavior is a marker of distress. You don't do it by trying to squash the behavior. You respond by, oh, you're very angry right now. You must be very hurt right now. Something's going on for you. Ah. And your nervous system relaxes and your heart opens and it softens. And then the child immediately can you become vulnerable. Yeah, the tears come up. The, the tears come up. And as my brilliant co-writer on Hold On To Your Kids, Gordon Neufeld, says, we shall be saved in an ocean of tears. So there's two kinds of tears. There are the tears of frustration, which don't help. But then there's the tears of vulnerability and genuine grief, which do promote growth. Not that we make kids suffer grief deliberately, but when they're sad about something, we help them experience that sadness without making them wrong for how they're acting it out. So really we have to understand what children are telling us through their behavior. Mm. And of course, mothers also need to look after themselves, which we already talked about. Well, what disconnects? I'm sure, you know, we talked about some of it, but just to really underscore the point, what disconnects someone from that instinct? So we talked about society, stress, presumably. Well, what disconnects from our instincts is when early in childhood, we are taught that to belong and to be acceptable and accepted, we have to suppress ourselves. So we actually, even a disconnection is not a mistake. It's a survival strategy. Mm -hmm. It's, as you say, an adaptation. So that disconnect doesn't happen for no reason. It's a brilliant survival technique, but it's unconscious. And here's the generational stuff, right? right. So we get taught. Yeah. I certainly got taught. Yeah. Disconnect from your instincts. Yeah. And our parents are disconnected. Because my parents were disconnected. Because what happened to them? You know? And then and then we parent our children in the same way and then they'll parent their children in the same way. Exactly. That's just how it's passed on. And nobody does it deliberately. And actually we're doing something that goes quite contrary to our best intentions. Only because we don't know any better. And unfortunately, this social structure and the so called experts, you never lose money by writing another book on how to discipline kids, how to force them into this mold or another. These are always bestsellers because they're so expressive of what the society expects. So they always get big media play. And parents are desperate and they're frustrated. So they need for these quick solutions. Well, because it can be so triggering. Yeah. I found it very triggering when I first, well, still, what am I talking about? I still find it triggering. By triggering, you mean? You know, when Jessie has, that's my, she's three and a half, when she has a tantrum, it's taken me loads of work with a therapist to not want to shut that down. It brings up so much well, of so, my own pain. Well, exactly. And triggering, do you mind if I ask you a few questions? Here? Yeah, I'd love you yeah, to. Okay. So what did you feel when Jessie was having a tantrum? I felt that I wanted her to be okay. My no, instinct no, no, was no, no, to no, shut no. her down. Hold on. Let me interrupt you. I felt I wanted to be okay. That's not a feeling. 
Okay. Okay, that's an intention. Yeah. What did you feel? And to shut her down wasn't an instinct. It was an emotional reaction. Mm. Your instincts are actually to love her and to support her. Mm. Okay. So what did you actually feel? I felt sad. You felt sadness. Mm. What did you feel sad about? That she was feeling sad, that she was so unhappy in that moment. And what made you angry? Mm, I don't know. Because you were angry as well, weren't you? When she was showing a tantrum? Yeah, I wanted her to stop for sure. I still want her to stop. What made you angry? Maybe the feeling of sadness or the feeling of... You you didn't want to feel sad? Yeah. What she was doing made you feel sad? Yeah. And so you wanted to make her responsible for how you felt? Yeah. Okay. Now, when was the first time in your life that you wished somebody else wasn't sad? Oh, early. Okay. My mom. In other words, you made your daughter into your mother. Mm. This is why it triggered you so much. Okay. Mm. You didn't do this deliberately. No. But this is what happens. All you had was an unhappy kid. And all she needed was for you to say, oh, you're really unhappy right now. You know, come here. You know, that's all she needed. Now, let's look at that word that you use, triggering. Metaphorically, it's a very interesting, very telling word. How big a part of the weapon is the trigger? Tiny. Tiny. What makes up the weapon is ammunition, explosives, a whole barrel and a mechanism to deliver the ammunition to the intended target, the trigger is a very small part. So instead of looking at the trigger, mm-hmm. let's look at all this explosive stuff that we're carrying inside ourselves, Yeah, which is the work that you did with your therapist. Yeah, thank uh, God. To, to your child's benefit. Yeah. But really, your reactions had nothing to do with your child. No. It's all about you and all about what happened to you as a kid. And again, as we keep pointing out, what happened to your mom as a kid? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And this links round right full circle to the start of this interview, which is, and that's an example of, I guess, me attempting to, by then taking that to my therapist, look after myself first. That's right. Yeah. That's right. As soon as you get curious, your instinct was, I don't want to be this way with my daughter. No. I want to be loving. That's your instinct. Yeah. It's that instinct that took you to the therapist. And I knew the theory. I mean, I was already with the therapist and I knew the theory, right? Because I'd I'd listened to you for years. I I knew the theory of to be with her and let her have exactly what you were just saying. You're having big feelings. But something was going on in me. Well, listen, it was even more revealing, perhaps. You listened to me, so you knew this. I teach this stuff and I know this. I still have have a hard time, you know. That makes me feel better. Because it's... There's different parts to us. There's the conscious, aware, adult part. But we all carry this wounded child inside of ourselves, mm-hmm. and that's what gets triggered. Maybe it was my six-month-old or my that's, one-year-old. That's or... exactly right, yeah. And that's what we have to deal with. And uh, the good news is we can deal with it. We can grow up. You know, it's never too late to have a happy childhood as somebody wants well, to. That's what I find so thrilling about your work mm. is that you present all this in such a brilliant way. And then the hope, which is that, you know, we can heal, we can change. It's not a hope. No. It's an actual possibility. Yeah, well, it, I'm, I'm a living example of that. Right. So are you. Yeah, right. And that kind of healing is accessible to everybody, but it does take some work. Yeah. And, and some awareness and some genuine compassion for oneself and some genuine curiosity about, okay, why did I do that? I really want to love my kid, but there I was, I lost it again. It's not a question of why did I do that, but hmm. Why did I do that? Well, that beating up is part of the same adaptation, right? Exactly, right. Now you beat ourselves up because otherwise the beating up is a way to keep yourself in line with adult expectation. You're putting yourself on the naughty step. That's right, yeah. So that they won't. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, gosh, I've, I've loved this discussion so much. 
you know, there's a lot of mothers that listen to this who want to do this type of work. That's what the, yeah. You know, I have all, that's what the podcast is about. Is there anything that you want to share with the mothers of the UK that we haven't already talked about? You know, I think it's been a very inclusive and thorough interview. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank um, you. I hope you don't mind and perceive it as self promotional if I recommend people read my books because all this material is covered in such detail and the topics we've touched upon here are explored in full depth in my writings. And so, your books have changed, you know, it's not too light to say changed my life in so many ways yeah. and you have such an amazing library of videos. Yeah, well, so, you know, which is quite more accessible for mums sometimes. Absolutely, yeah. So reading, that, some of your uh, books are, are big. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Big, but brilliantly written. I'm of course, really of course. <laughs> but, 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 but yeah, you're quite right. On YouTube, you can catch many of my lectures. It doesn't cost a penny. You don't have to join any clubs or pay a fee. You just seek out my name on YouTube. And people have just filmed me talking at various places and they've put it on YouTube. I, I didn't do that. But they're available on there and people watch it. So, wow, it's an amazing yeah. library. I was looking yeah. at a lot this yeah. past week. And for that point of view, I'm very grateful to the internet because it really has helped to spread my work without any effort on my part. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, yeah. and I always ask the same question mm-hmm. at the end of every interview, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Soft love. Yeah. When you have that, Everything else follows. I'm also working to give it to myself, by the way. So, <laughs> me too. As soon as I figure it out, I'll I'll create a product and get rich. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been an honor. My pleasure. Thank you. So that was the episode. I hope you loved it. Please do subscribe to the Motherkind podcast. We release incredible new episodes like this one every week and I don't want you to miss out. I'll see you next time. I'm Lauren and I'm Nicole and if you enjoy this show you will love our podcast self-care club every week we trial a different form of self-care and report back on the results we've tried everything from cuddle therapy setting boundaries laughter yoga and many more two friends who rarely agree on anything testing out the world of self-care so you don't have to we've even written a book dedicated to self-care practices that cost you nothing you can listen to self-care club wherever you get your podcasts or to purchase our book search have you tried this on amazon